Welcome to another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast. The Arizona Cardinals, for the first time since 1974, are 5-0. I was two years old the last time the Cardinals won their first five games of the season. And this one against the 49ers was a lot different than the others. This was a battle. The Cardinals found a different way to win compared to weeks one through four. If Tennessee was a snapshot of what the Cardinals could become and the Rams potentially what the Cardinals might be, the 49ers game was a lot different, but it tells you a lot about where this team is. It's different than what we've seen in the past. Kyler Murray's playing like an MVP, but the defense is good enough to win you a game. Who better to talk about the 5-0 start for the Cardinals than General Manager Steve Kime? He's our guest today on the Dave Pash Podcast. Among the subjects we'll cover, the growth and maturation of quarterback Kyler Murray. The thing I see more now is two things, pre-snap and post-snap, the things he can do with his eyes. You start to see him manipulating safeties and defenders where he can look off and locate secondary and third options, whereas before it might have been one, two, and then run. Kime also talks about what it's like to be a general manager day in and day out. He'll get into the rookie class and how they're progressing. When he first thought Cliff Kingsbury would make a good NFL head coach, and what he and Cliff did this summer with a celebrity musician. You can follow us on Twitter, at PashPod. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and Gila River Hotels and Casinos. Without further ado, the general manager of the Arizona Cardinals and two-time NFL Executive of the Year, Steve Kine. So, Steve, let me start by way of a story Going back to 2002, I feel like Wolf. It was 2002. (laughs) Give me a beat, Steve. So 2002, I get the Arizona Cardinals radio play-by-play job. I'd done the Bills preseason games in 2001, so I'd been in an NFL training camp. But this was like my first camp as the broadcaster, as the guy. And I didn't really know anybody other than my broadcast team. And I'm at my first training camp, and I think it was the first day, and there's a knock on my door, my dorm room in Flagstaff, and I turn around, I look, and it looks like one of the players, offensive lineman guy, bald, young, my age, late 20s. And it's he says, hi, my name's Steve Kime. I'm one of the scouts here. Uh, we have some mutual friends at Syracuse. And you and I struck up a conversation, and you said, hey, man, anything you need, any questions about any players or whatever, any help I can extend you, you let me know. And so I did. Uh, I would come up to you at training camp and ask you about a certain player that you scouted, and you and I struck up a friendship, and here we are 20 years later. You've risen to not only general manager but two-time executive of the year in the NFL. So the reason I tell that story is when I look at 5-0 and and I think of all the people that I'm happiest for, you're at the top of the list, man, because of our friendship and because of what you've been able to do with this organization. I know you got to think big picture. You can't get too excited, but how does it feel for you to be 5-0? and Well, I mean, it obviously feels uh, great, but at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I think that when you're in the fire, so to speak, you, you can't enjoy – or I should say it's hard to enjoy the process. You know, it's it's always thinking about tomorrow, next week, and and you really don't have a chance to think about, I need to enjoy this win because you're thinking about the next game and sure. we have to win that game. That's a balance that I think that all of us struggle with on a day-to-day basis is 
you know, enjoying uh, the process and the grind and all those sort of things. Because when you lose in the National Football League, it's the end of the world. When you win, you take a deep breath and say, okay, on to the next. So uh, for me, uh, you know, obviously it's rewarding to be 5-0. and And to go back to the, the first part of your story, the biggest difference is, is now you have no hair. I know. I and I had like almost a full head of hair back then. So the 20 years is showing up on us. I know, bro. (laughs) I know, man. Um, You know, last year, obviously things started well. This year feels different to me. Does it feel, and again, I know you got to kind of stay in the moment, but does it feel different to you in terms of the energy, the leadership in the locker room, just the vibe overall? Yeah, and and I think it's, um, the way I see it is it's, it's it's an air of confidence. Uh, not cockiness. Uh, there's humility in there. Yet at the same time, there are enough guys who believe in what we've built. You know, the the organization. They believe in the leadership. To me, that's half the battle. Because when you put a team together, and we've talked about this before, uh, it doesn't matter how talented you are until they come together and gel as a team. No different from the year we went to the Super Bowl. I mean, look, we went to the East Coast and got trashed twice that I can remember uh, for sure, playing in Philadelphia and Philadelphia and New England there. We came together late and gelled as a team and got hot at the right time. 2015, we went to an FC uh, championship. You know, there was an air of confidence in that locker room. We had a talented team and we knew it, yet we also enjoyed the process. We enjoyed each other. And I see that in this team. The guys really enjoyed being around each other and they sort of view it as a family. How about Kyler? Because everybody that I've talked to, and I'm including fellow broadcasters that call the games that meet with Kyler, in comparison to last year, the term that I'm hearing is night and day mm-hmm. in terms of his personality, his demeanor, uh, his willingness, and kind of owning being the franchise quarterback and how you handle the media, how you deal with production meetings, all those things. What are you seeing in that respect from from Kyler with leadership and how he is around the team? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, a natural ownership that he's taken on. And, you know, it's like when I think about a kid going to high school and being a freshman, then you see him as a junior or senior and how much different is he? I mean, obviously people mature, um, they grow up, and not that he was immature, but understanding how to be a professional what it took on and off the field. And I think that's what sometimes we have a hard time with in this business. You want to draft a guy and you want to get him through baggage claim and you want to throw him in and instantly they're plug and play. And that's just not it. Very few Anquan Bones, very few Rondale Moores. It's not reality. These guys take some time, mostly processing, seeing things, playing at that speed, realizing that everybody around them is that good. And um, it's not as easy as people think. So, you know, we want to be hard on him early on in the process, and it's, it, it can be difficult. And he's, he's done a fantastic job, in my opinion, growing in a lot of different areas, mostly on the field when, you, when you're looking at his ability to see with a vision, process things. The thing I see more now is two things, pre-snap and post-snap, the things he can do with his eyes. You start to see him manipulating safeties and defenders where he can look off and locate secondary and third options, whereas before it might have been one, two, and then run. How about, like I noticed this on Sunday, I watched him before the game going down to the defensive players, saying a word, high-fiving the offensive lineman before going onto the field for that last drive. Not saying that didn't happen last year, but again, I feel like I'm seeing more of that. 
How important is that when you scout a quarterback, when you talk with players you're thinking of drafting, how much do you have to kind of think about how is this going to translate in terms of leadership and how a player is around his teammates? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's one of the hardest things that a, a talent evaluator has to do. You can see all the physical traits on tape, but you don't know how a guy is going to play and react within your system. You don't know how their leadership is going to come off. You don't know whether they're a vocal guy, whether they're a guy that likes to be out in front of people. Uh, some people just like to do their job, and there's nothing wrong with that unless you're playing that position. You know, the quarterback is the alpha male. He's the guy that everybody looks to when things are good, when things are bad. So the guy has got to be able to have thick skin. Uh, he's got to be able to have a short memory, sort of like a pitcher in baseball. You get a home, home run hit off you, you can't think about it. Same thing, you throw a pick, next play. And um, that's hard to do, especially when there's 65,000 people in the stadium and there's millions watching on TV. It's not for everybody. Just say yeah, that. Sure. What What do you think's the next step for him? What do you, as an organization, want to see from him the rest of this season? I, I think it's just continued uh, small things, knowing down and distance, understanding uh, little intricacies that, you know, for example, when you're flushed out of the pocket, that you don't take a two-yard loss by running out of bounds, that you get rid of the ball. Little things like that, but it's coming with time. We're continuing to see little things that he would not have done in the past, which is exactly what, what we thought. In year three, by the time we get to this point, which is where most guys, you get to that point in their career, you say, uh, year three, you want to see them evolve uh, and become the kind of player that you envisioned. And you look back and I think about the things that he did his rookie year, and most of it was done based off of just pure athleticism and talent, which is amazing in itself. Then you look at year two and you started to see him ascend and do different things with his eyes and his progression. Now you're seeing the full complement of things, which is why we're 5-0. and I remember when Russell Wilson came out, and I know you, there was some interest from the Cardinals. He ends up going in the third round and obviously had incredible success. And if Russell Wilson comes out today, he's probably the number one pick. But back then, people were afraid, right, of, of size and stature. You guys take Kyler Murray number one overall, and it was almost as if that triggered the rest of the league to say, yeah, it doesn't matter. This kid's talented. He's got a strong arm. He, we've seen him have success at every level. He's always played that way. He's pretty good at avoiding hits and, and not getting injured. Do you feel like you guys have set a trend? Because, I mean, I'm just doing college games now, and we used to look at, okay, he's got – Oh, he can make every throw. Oh, he's got NFL size. We're not even talking about that stuff anymore, or as much anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the first pick, you know, possibly setting a trend, but not, you know, in general, I think it's what you just said. I think it was Russell Wilson because we work in a business that, you know, a lot of it is surrounded by comps. You know, what was a guy's uh, height, weight, and speed at this position? And if he didn't have the required size and speed, you know, you'd put him on in the back side of the board, or um, he would have to be a guy that proved it. It would, certainly wouldn't have been a high draft pick. But the fact that Russell Wilson at 5'10 was able to have that kind of success, it led you to believe that height isn't everything, because Russell had the compensating abilities to, um, so to speak, mask his lack of height, which is big hands, strong arm, great feet, good vision, can make all the throws, has great decision-making, placement, touch as a, as a, as a thrower. And when we studied Kyler, that was really what it came down to. 
not only that, but he had rare and unusual speed, explosiveness, um, all the different traits that you would obviously love to see in a guy who's six foot five, but he wasn't six foot five. So um, can he still do it? 100% in our mind, we felt like he could. When you built this team, this particular group, the 2021 version, and you knew you had to make some changes after the way things ended last year, and I know you've talked about this elsewhere, maybe you can go a little bit more in depth here. What was top of mind for you? How disappointed were you with last year, and how fired up were you to fix it, and what were your focuses? Well, I I was probably more fired up than I've ever been because – I saw what the template looked like, and it looked like the possibilities were endless. There just needed to be some additions um, to areas where we had concerns. And and I felt like it probably started with emotional maturity. And when I say emotional maturity, I mean that in a way where guys have to be able to handle success and adversity the same. You know, where you're having success and you don't get too high, if you're having some adversity, you have the strength and the mental toughness to, to battle through it. It wasn't a pretty game against San Fran, and, you know, there were things that weren't clean on tape that we would uh, like to take back, and our coaches want to coach them up. But at the same time, to go through some rough patches of the game and still be able to win that game 17-10, to 10, I think, is says a lot about the character of the men in that locker room, and that's where it all started. That and then probably the physicality uh, of this team, both on offense and defense, particularly on the offensive line and defensive lines. We saw that physicality on Sunday. That was a that was a battle, and it was uh, like the hit on on the goal line. I don't know if you could hear that in your booth. We yeah. could almost hear that hit. Yeah, by Isaiah Simmons. Amazing, and the and the collision and and that sort of thing. And in today's day and age, you know, we've obviously tried to take the head out of the game and that sort of thing. But there are some times when you just have to have big collisions, and you have to have guys willing to, as Wolf would say, stick their face in the fan. And 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 that play right there, just to me, epitomized uh, a lot about this team. Something uh, as small as that, where we have the ball, they have the ball on the, you know, what two or three yard line and 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 obviously a, a game changing play right there and a momentum shifter because of our physicality so you talk about physicality and leadership the first guy that comes to mind is jj watt can you tell us how that went down this summer i had michael on and he's and i said it's amazing that that didn't get out into the media the deandre hopkins thing didn't get out and michael said yeah steve and i we talk about that and then we'll let you know coach in when he needs to know what we're thinking of doing and get his input but there's nobody to leak it because it's just you and Michael. So right. now that that's in the rearview mirror, how did that deal come down? And are you starting to see that leadership and physicality showing up out of him? And how is that impacting the team? Yeah, and 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 we got in early, you know. And and I feel like, you know, when it comes to those type of trades, you have to be aggressive. Yet at the same time, you know, when you have a player of JJ's stature or D Hop stature, and you're trying to get something done, and you feel like you're making some headway. You start to wonder, man, is this is this is this a joke? Like, it, are they really considering this, or are they playing with our heads? And um, in JJ's situation, I know he had a bunch of other suitors, and so many times I would look up at the TV and I would see JJ Watt narrows it down to three teams, and I'm thinking, I just got done talking to his agent. How, how he didn't tell me that, you know? And I'm thinking, you know what? Either this guy is is a master at. Uh, BS or 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 quite frankly like this is one of the best secrets in the NFL right now and I'll never forget talking to Michael and and telling him you know we got the deal done and the excitement that surrounded it but JJ's agent let me know that JJ wanted to break the news and this was the picture that he was going to post which 
show JJ in a Cardinal shirt, uh, squatting. And, and I'll never forget thinking to myself, man, tomorrow at 11 a.m. when he posts this, the internet is going to literally break <laughs> because people are going to be shocked, especially whenever John Clayton came out and said it was down to three teams and we weren't one of them. I did the same thing when I went to ESPN, Steve. Had a big ESPN shirt squatting 700 pounds. It, <laughs> you know, if the internet were around then, it would have uh, it would have blown up. Um, continuing with the theme of physicality, James Conner, five touchdowns in three games, change of pace. When you were watching tape on him and trying to make the decision with the running back room, what went into that decision and how pleased are you, you with the way he's played? Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, you look at the big picture and you say, okay, well, in the NFL in today's day and age, most teams have a couple backs to complement each other. team we're playing this week, you know, with, with Cleveland, they have two great backs. You know, we, we love everything about Chase Edmonds, but we also look back and we think, okay, you look at the game last year when we were playing New England and we had the ball right before half on the one-inch line and we couldn't pound it in. Um, something to be said for a bigger back that can finish games, that can do the things that James does. And I don't think most people understand how big James is until you walk up on him and you see that the guy's, gosh, he's probably 6'2", 230 pounds, runs with with an attitude, runs with the physicality that you look for. And I think the the other thing that's surprising about him is he's niftier and a little quicker than you, you would anticipate for being that size. So he catches people off guard, he has soft hands, and really feel what we did offensively. Uh, James Saxon had intimate knowledge of him, being mm-hmm. his coach at one time in Pittsburgh. And then we brought him out here for a visit, spent some time with him, and really fell in love with the person as well. So thought he was a great fit, and uh, to me so far it's been a really good signing. All right, I want to get back into this team and 2021, but I, I want to give the fans a little bit uh, of insight into what the day in the life of a NFL general manager is like. Is every day different for you? Do you wake up not knowing what the day is going to bring? Do you have a certain routine as opposed to when you get up, when you go to bed, what you do each day? Give, give me a sense of a normal week in season for Steve Kime. Well, I'm, I'm not proud to tell you this, but I'm sort of like a grandpa. I think I probably stay up to about 9 or 9.30 most nights. That being said, I don't sleep well. And again, I'm not bragging about this, but I, like this morning I was up at 3.30. Oh. I was here by probably 4.15. And again, that's not to brag. It's the fact that I can't sleep, which is unfortunate. <laughs> so the bags under my eyes are the telltale sign. Uh, so I'll come in and, you know, it's it's nice and quiet in here. The interesting fact that people wouldn't know, I've been in here as early as 3.45 a.m. And there's always one vehicle out in the parking lot. And it's a, it's a white Ford Raptor. And I've never beat Cliff Kingsbury in here. <laughs> I don't know if the guy sleeps, if he's a vampire or what he is. <laughs> But that guy is in here every morning before I can get here, and it's it's amazing. So I'll get in, and first thing I usually do is is the thing that I love the most, which is watch film, whether it's college or pro. And before you know, most people get in the office, it gives me a chance to have some meditation time. I, I like to call it, which is really just watching tape, listening to music, whatever it may be, podcasts of yours, and uh, it's refreshing, relaxing. It's what I love to do, and I unfortunately don't get to do as much as I, I'd like. Then are you on the phone a good part of the day? Are you looking at, okay, this player got hurt, so now we got to start to look at either players that are on the practice squad mm-hmm. or players that are on the roster who have been inactive, or we got to look at other teams for trades? Yeah, I mean, it's constant dialogue. And depending on the game, you know, how many injuries you, you incurred and 
what um, the moves that you have to make that week, the practice squad players that you have to flip. Generally, we bring in guys on Mondays. They get physicals Tuesday morning. We work them out on Tuesday mid-morning because that's our day off of practice. Then we have to make some roster moves. Um, but, you know, generally it's constant dialogue all day um, with guys like Coach and, and our, our scouting department uh, to talk about the ready list and players that we want to bring in for workouts and uh, the the training room staff and, and, and all those guys with, you know, the injuries and how long players are going to be out and trying to forecast that. So it's constant dialogue, you know, meeting with Michael and talking about the team. And, you know, we have a, a lot of dialogue on a daily basis. Generally, probably two or three times we talk about the roster and different things with the organization. Again, the thing that we have to do that's different from a lot of people is planning for the future, not just the present. What's on the playlist when you're watching film? What music? You know, I'm, I'm generally a, a country music fan. Uh, I got to give it to my buddy Blake Shelton, who's a big diehard Cardinal fan, so I got to give him a little shout out. Uh, Cliff and I went on tour with him for a couple days this past year, which was a lot of fun. Got to see what it's like to sleep on a bus, which I don't ever want to do again. And but it was a nice bus, though. It was a nice bus, but those uh, sleeping areas aren't made for a guy who's six two and a half, two hundred eighty pounds. I would have paid money to see you and Cliff like on bunk beds in a bus with Blake Shelton. <laughs> Cliff told me, uh, I think it was on day three, he heard me at about 4 a.m. dragging my bag to get off there giggling because I was so delirious I was ready to go. I was like, get me to the Ritz-Carlton as fast as I can. <laughs> you, I, I told the story about you know, you engaging in a conversation with me and initiating that relationship. And I watch on the field before games how you interact with other GMs, like you're friends with them. And Frank Calienda was on last week, and he made the point because he knows you, and he said, you know, you almost have to be friends with mm -hmm. other general managers because you got to do business with them. Sure. So how does that work? I mean, how much of making deals happen is – because you've got a relationship with someone, are there deals that get done with GMs you don't like? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that it's that I don't like. It's probably more that I don't have a, a, a long-term relationship with, you know. And the one thing that, that, that most GMs have that, that other people don't is growing up in the business, a lot of the GMs were scouts at one time on the road. So for 13 years, I spent 185 days on the road traveling from city to city. And in many cases, being away from your family, uh, away from your friends, and you sort of become like a nomad. And really the other people that you spend a lot of time with, and I'm talking about eight hours a day in a dark film room with John Schneider or you know Les Snead or any other GM in the NFL, Jason Light. And... You know, as you're spending eight hours with those guys, you're in the same room. You're staying at the same hotels. You may go to the same place to eat for dinner and catch up for a couple hours before you go write five hours of reports. So you develop these relationships, and, and then it carries you throughout the rest of your life. And it's no different from, listen, you have a job to do, which I respect. Um, so anything I can do to help you with your job uh, is something that's important to me. Now, am I going to tell you about the trade I might have just consummated? Of course not. you got to know what to obviously tell people and what not to. No different if I'm doing a trade with Howie Roseman or I'm doing a trade with Brandon Bean. 
it, it helps the process when you have that relationship. You're not going to, again, give trade secrets, but you are going to develop a relationship, and just the way you communicate certainly helps. You mentioned Jason. He texted Wolf and I during one of the preseason TV games and said, I will buy you both a steak dinner if you can somehow get on the air that Steve and I are good buddies. I'm like, does he think we're amateurs? I looked at Wolf like, he doesn't think we can work this in. So, of course, we show you and Michael in the booth, and there's Michael Bidwell, team owner, and Arizona Cardinals GM Steve Keim. You know, uh, congratulations to the Buccaneers, you know, the defending champs, and Jason Light, their GM, who used to be here and is still good friends with Steve Kime. So, like, five minutes later, and Jason heard, he's like, dang it, text, like, I'm like, what did you think? You would think after getting a Super Bowl ring that you wouldn't need the shameless plug anymore. <laughs> I know. You guys are, are still tight, and, yeah. and look, this is someone that I know he was in New England prior to coming here, but, you know, he's from the Steve Kime tree. Is that rewarding to see – what Jason is doing down in Tampa. Yeah, I mean, another guy that I grew up in the business with and spent a lot of time on the road. Uh, obviously, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I mean, talk to him several times a week. You know, for me, a, a guy that, you know, earned his way and has done an unbelievable job and uh, had some rough years, you know, that we all go through in this business. It's not easy. And um, just awfully proud of him, man. He is. He has done a fantastic job and uh, – in this business, I think you kind of know uh, who's going to be successful. It's not just the player evaluation part. It's not just uh, understanding how to negotiate contracts, whatever it may be, because there's so many facets to this job people don't understand. It's just getting the big picture and understanding people and managing people and having that personality. It, it's it, it's not for everybody. Obviously, you have to have thick skin in this business because it's difficult. You're being judged on everything you do. There's 70 million people that play fantasy football, and 69 of them think they're better than you. You know, and I, I get that. It's it's a results-based business. So getting into it, you have to know what you're getting into, and you have to be able to look at the big picture and, and understand it and respect the process. You talked about all those years on the road, working your way up. You really don't see it a lot in professional sports where a guy works his way up through the ranks at one team and stays with that team and eventually moves from a scout to general manager. I think of Eric Spolstra in the NBA, who was a video coordinator with the Heat, worked his way up, assistant coach, all this successful head coach. And I think of you being a scout here, working your way up and eventually becoming the general manager of this team. Why do you think that is? Do you think because – because I'm sure you had opportunities before you got the general manager job to look elsewhere. Why do you think it is that guys sometimes just look to take the first job because it's a GM opportunity? And it could be said for coaches, too. Sometimes coaches look for the first job to leave to try to take it rather than waiting for the right job. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's a tough balance because you're so goal-oriented uh, and you want everything now. Today's world, that's the way we're built. And I think that it's it's hard to, to take a step back and – look at the big picture and realize maybe this isn't good and good for me or it's not a good fit. Um, it, it's difficult. I know that because, you know, it's hard to turn down the compensation and, you know, obviously the fact that you get to run your own operation when maybe it, uh, that's the point is maybe it's not the right situation because you don't get to have a final say in something. But, you know, that that's the cool thing about 
me being in this position is to the fact that what you said has started here. I think myself and Brian Gutekinst in Green Bay are the only two guys in the NFL that started off with their organizations at the lowest level being area scout and working all the way up to GM. But the coolest thing about that for me is I don't just wear a cardinal on my polo. I wear a cardinal on my heart, man, because this is this isn't a job. This is my passion. Our fan base is my passion. Making the state of Arizona proud, making the Bidwell family proud. It's my passion. You know, I somebody said, "What what would be the coolest thing in the world for you? What would be your ultimate goal for you to envision before you retire?" And I said, "Watching Michael Bidwell hold that uh, Lombardi trophy. That would right then and there. But that then we would get there and I'd probably say I want to see him do it twice. <laughs> then three times." So, you know, just just making the people of Arizona proud, you know, and that's being here so long and seeing us go through tough times. That's always been sort of what I visualized. And I believe that 100 percent for fans that may be listening and saying, "Okay, you know, Steve, he's got to say that. Like, I believe that because you've even said things over the years to me, to Wolf, to others of really want to make you guys proud, really want you guys to to like what you're seeing. We want to do this right. So I I believe that that is absolutely from the heart. I know as a kid you talked about you thought you'd be a GM someday. Did you think after you left NC State you'd play for a while and then eventually get into scouting, or was this something like even in college you had your mindset on? Well, I, I had dreams of, of playing in the NFL and having an opportunity with the Dolphins. I, I think when I, I realized that I was a try-hard guy that you know had limited ability, but the thing that was probably the best was to get hurt then – to be released and then I had some other opportunities and I think I was smart enough or at least self-perceptive enough to realize you know what let's let's move on to the next part of your career which was great because it gave me the opportunity to start here at such a young age you know I started with the Cardinals I think at 25 and it helped me get my career um, started early and on track and for about 10 years I just had my head down and I worked my tail off and had those goals and continually you know, went through the ranks and was elevated to, you know, national scout, college scouting director, and then ultimately um, director of player personnel and then VP of player personnel. So uh, the great part about that is, is I learned every step of the way. And the coolest thing is, is when you start off at such a low level, you learn, you know, how organizations are run, not just, you know, what it's like to, to evaluate a guy at Notre Dame. You understand that there's parts of the business, whether it's, picking up a guy at the airport or taking him to get his physical or running an errand for for a coach. I mean, there's a lot of different things that come with this business that people aren't prepared for. And um, so I, I learned a lot of great lessons along the way. You spoke earlier about you and Cliff going on tour with Blake Shelton. So obviously you and Cliff are friends. And when you hired Cliff as the head coach, there were a lot of people that were curious as to what you saw we're starting to see that here, obviously, in year three. And I, when Cliff was on here, you know, Cliff, I knew Cliff from covering college, and I remember Brian Greasy and I walking out of a meeting with Cliff when he was the offensive coordinator at Texas A&M, and we both were like, that dude is going to be a head coach. Like, mm-hmm. that guy is smart. He's got a great personality. And I think people now, he's, he seems looser with the media. You're starting to see that a little bit more. What were some of the things that you saw in Cliff? And when did you start to see those things? Does it go back to 
when Manziel was at A&M? Does it go back to Mahomes when he was coaching him at Texas Tech? Like, when did you have an idea that Cliff might be a good NFL head coach? Well, through, through the years, exactly what you're saying. I mean, getting to know him and going to scout players, whether it was at Houston or A&M or Texas Tech, um, just the interaction that you would have with him. Uh, he always impressed me with the way he carried himself, um, the way he talked about the players, the way he coached them when I watched him coach on the field. And then I'll, I'll never forget um, Bruce Arians, myself, and Michael flew in to work out Patrick Mahomes uh, at Texas Tech, spent a lot of time with Cliff, and all three of us came away from that workout thinking, man, this guy, he's impressive. You know, not just Patrick Mahomes, but, <laughs> but Cliff as well. And um, Michael and I said, man, he, you know, one day I think he was going to be a good, not only head coach in college football, but he may have a chance to be a good head coach in the NFL. And fast forward, um, started to think about how we could be innovative and do some some things differently. Sometimes people say, well, it's it's you know too early, like Sean McVay was too young, too early. Sometimes guys have to grow in the business and they continually get better and grow within the business, just like a scout or a GM would, and um, felt like he would be a great fit. What are, what's the biggest difference you've seen in him here in year three compared to years one and two? I, w- I would say uh, the comfort level of being himself, letting his personality come out and not being as guarded. And not guarded in a bad way, guarded in a way where, you know, you're the head coach of an NFL team. Sometimes there are guys who are almost as old as you or if they're not, they're as old as you. And um, that can be tough, especially with guys that are, you know, future Hall of Famers, Larry Fitzgerald, guys like that. And now you're looking him in the face and you're telling him what to do and, and and you're trying to coach him up. So you're trying to build credibility with those type of players. So I, I just think that, again, just coming into his own, being more comfortable with not only the players but his own staff. And I think he's we've put together a really good coaching staff here that, um, that I've loved watching and, and working with daily, just the way they've developed players. We're having a lot of young players um, that are having success, guys in their first three years. You know, we make a big deal out of the leaders we brought in, the Rodney Hudsons, the A.J. Greens, the J.J. Watts. That's that's great, and it's been exactly what this organization needed, in my opinion. But to have success being a 5-0 and team, you have to have guys in the first three, four years of their contracts have success. Guys like Jalen Thompson, Chase Edmonds, Kyler Murray, Christian Kirk. Go down the list of the guys who are young, Isaiah Simmons, who are having success. you got to hit on those guys. What's the biggest difference with Isaiah? We talked about the big hit. He He's flashing. He had the pick last year against Seattle. He's obviously playing more. Is he just more comfortable? Is he more physical? Is he playing more physically or relying on his instincts more this year? I think comfort and confidence both because you take a guy who played at a number of different positions in college, then you're asking him to do some different things in the NFL – and we didn't have an off season. COVID struck. It was tough on everybody. He didn't have an off season. He didn't um, took him a little while to get it, like it does most young guys. Then he has a full off season, and then he gains confidence. When you gain confidence, now all of a sudden he can play full speed, play with your eyes. Now that that's where we're reaping the benefits. We're seeing a guy that's playing full speed, playing physical, and trusting his eyes. Let's talk about a few of the rookies, Saban Collins. I think it was game four against the Rams. He only played four snaps, uh, played much more on, on Sunday. Are, are, is he what you thought he and hoped he would be, or is it still too early to say that? Yeah, no, I, and I think that, um, like the Rams game, I think the personnel and the offensive scheme dictated some of our personnel. 
yesterday I know he played 40-some snaps and, um, again, made some mistakes yesterday but also made some big plays and uh, has been physical, has played downhill, has played fast. All the things that we thought he would do, but then there are some of the same mistakes that we thought would happen uh, and will always happen for young players. So he, he's on the right track. He's exactly, I think, where we thought he would potentially be. And the only way he's going to get better is through experience and through snaps. Marco Wilson, first of all, do you see him back against Cleveland? And then second, this guy looks like an absolute stud, like nothing phases him. How did you guys know that? Yeah, I think there's a, a good chance uh, for sure. And he is a guy that, you know, as soon as he came in, everything he did, you know, you start to think to yourself, well, fourth-round pick, we, even though we traded up, we loved him. But at the same time, like, are my eyes deceiving me? How every day is he stacking together practices where he looks like he looks? You know, where he's going against Hop and AJ and Rondale when he's having success. And then, you know, we gained confidence in him, and he showed that he had the maturity level and the football acumen that you get excited about. And he just continued to, to gain confidence with the coaching staff, through with the personnel staff. Throw him out there week one, and guy doesn't miss a beat and has been excellent. A lot of uh, a lot of credit goes to our scouting staff and and those guys for you know once we get past the first couple rounds, to me once you get to rounds four through seven, that's where your scouting staff has to shine because most players have some type of holes at that point, and you have to find something that you believe in that you can fight for that even though this player may be missing certain traits, they make up for it with other things and other strengths that you think are going to be make them a good pro. I'm sure the evaluation process on, on Rondale Moore was relatively simple when you were just watching tape because he flashed on tape. Like, I've got Iowa-Purdue this week, uh, 3.30 Eastern, 12.30 in ABC. Sorry, I had to throw that out there. <laughs> but when he was at Purdue 2018, you know, he had that incredible year, and then there's injuries, then there's COVID. Was the decision tough to take Rondale Moore where you did? No, because I think he would have gone higher if he didn't have some of the soft tissue issues and uh, we didn't have COVID and we had a larger uh, template to, to evaluate. I, I just think the, the guy, the things that he did on tape, um, his explosiveness, his ability to create mismatches, uh, how electric he is with the ball in his hands, to me it was it was something that as soon as you saw him, you envisioned him now in this offense and the different things that Cliff likes to do. Man, I, I thought the, the, the possibilities were endless. Uh, I know some other teams at the top of round two that were very serious about taking him up there. So for him to slide into where we took him into, um, we thought it was a no-brainer. And then just after taking him and seeing how mature he is and how articulate and smart he is as a football player, it's been really rewarding. A couple more. We'll get you out of here because I know you have a job to do. More shameless self-promotion. I did, I'm did. i doing a few Thursday night games for Westwood One. I did uh, the Houston game a few weeks ago, and you know David Johnson's barely playing. And he was part of, obviously, the trade to get DeAndre Hopkins. And I still am in shock sometimes that he's here. Like you talked about J.J. Watt when you were kind of going through the process and you had to kind of like, is J.J. Watt really considering coming to the Cardinals? And when the blue check – I had to look at the blue check mark when Schefter tweeted it out because I was at the gym. I was like, we got DeAndre. De that DeAndre Hopkins? Like, is there another DeAndre – like a kid from a small school who was like undrafted somewhere? How did you guys get DeAndre Hopkins? Because this guy to me is still the best receiver in football. You know, you, you just have to do your due diligence and, and make the calls. And I'll never forget, you know, I talked for weeks 
with Bill O'Brien, and we finally came to an agreement on a deal. It was right around the time in free agency, and I'll never forget, um, we had the deal agreed upon, and then COVID struck. And all deals are finalized based on, you know, both players passing, um, contingent on passing and physical. So the fact that COVID struck, we weren't able to get both of those players' um, physicals. Uh, so we must have gone, I don't know, another two months without having the the knowledge of whether, you know, Hop and David would pass the respective physicals. And so that that was alarming. And needless to say, we were on pins and needles to make sure that everything was fine. But there was obviously a sigh of relief when they both passed and we were able to, to, to finalize everything. And, you know, he's just been he's been phenomenal. I mean, the guy is competitive. His teammates love him. Um, obviously you guys have seen enough of them to realize that when game's on the line, give him the ball and it doesn't matter whether he's covered or not, he's going to come down with it. So he's a guy that just having him on the team, uh, the way he carries himself, the way he competes, he, to me, confidence permeates through the locker room when they think about number 10. I have to ask you this as the last question. Otherwise I'm sure I would get people saying you're not doing your job. No one's talking about Larry Fitzgerald right now because the Cardinals are 5-0. and Where do things stand with Fitz? Like, in your mind, is he retired? Or is it, you know, there's there's a door open for conversation at some point in the future for him to play again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess he hasn't announced any retirement, so I don't know that, I mean, that's a question that I think he would have to answer. I know prior to the season, way back, probably last year, you know, we knew that the salary cap would, would come down and, um, you know, we communicated and I let him know, listen, be helpful the sooner than later if you let, let me know what you're going to do because of, you know, the salary cap and trying to plan and forecast for, for future things. So he, you know, we were on the same page and that's the way it's been every year. You know, the last several years he's done one, one year contracts and uh, we got them done relatively easy. So, you know, the ball was in his court and uh, just, you know, again, I know he's got a lot of things on his plate and he's having a lot of success with different, um, you know, things in his life, whether it's the sons and different business opportunities. So, like I said, you know, we miss him, obviously. He's great in the locker room, great on the field. Guy's a consummate pro and one of my favorite people in the world. No question. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for the time, man. Really appreciate you doing this, brother. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Always great to catch up with Steve Kahn. Been with the organization since 1999. Took over the general manager position in 2013. Two-time NFL Executive of the Year and the GM of the only unbeaten team left in professional football at 5-0. Great stuff on Kyler Murray and how he's matured as a leader and also some of the things he's doing on the field that we didn't see in years one and two. Also, Steve's breakdown of the rookie class, how they're maturing, where J.J. Watt's leadership is showing up, and how Cliff Kingsbury has grown in year three. Appreciate Steve's time. want to remind you that we are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and Gila River Hotels and Casinos. Next week, we'll talk with another general manager, the GM of the Phoenix Suns, James Jones, will join the Dave Pash podcast. Thanks to Steve Kime, and we'll talk to you Sunday from Cleveland when the Cardinals face the Browns.